You're listening to a podcast by the Center for Action and Contemplation. To learn more, visit cac.org. Paul, one of my favorite things is when Richard wears his Franciscan habit. Uh-huh. It's like the cutest thing ever. Yeah, you don't see him wear it very often, so when you do, it's kind of a treat. Yeah, and it just reminds you again, like, oh yeah, Franciscanism is the ground from which Richard has drawn so many of his insights and teachings and even evident in his whole orientation in his life and his ministry. Yeah, that lineage, that Franciscan tradition really helps you understand who Richard is and how he's able to speak with such a prophetic and poetic voice as clearly as he does because he is in the footsteps of Francis in that way. Mm-hmm. In this episode, we dive into environmental awareness rooted in Franciscan spirituality, and it's a helpful lens through which we can begin to address the issues that we're facing environmentally, but from a contemplative stance that maybe tries to move us forward in making um, positive choices that are aware and connected to the impact that Mm -hmm. we have, but in a way that doesn't feel dogmatic or heavy-handed or judgmental toward people who maybe aren't ready to make those choices. Yeah, and I know this is so close to our heart as parents, as we're thinking about what does healthy spirituality look like in a time of climate crisis. So I think for all those reasons and more, it's this is one of the most relevant and, and, and resonant, one of the most resonant conversations we have with Richard because it's so needed now in a time of crisis just like this. So with that, enjoy our conversation with Richard here on environmentalism and the Franciscan tradition. So Richard, um, you know, we've all read Eager to Love and we, we, oh. we love the Why do you sound so surprised? <laughs> <laughs> I do. I really, so thank you. <laughs> I think I think part of the reason why it's made such an impact on, on me personally is just that it helps explain the tradition that birthed you in this way. Yes, and uh, gives a uh, a deep time uh, to your own formation, which I I find personally helpful as I try to participate in um, the wider alternative orthodoxy uh, that you have so well taught. Um, and in that, you know, you name that the early Franciscans, Bonaventure, Scotus, and obviously Francis, Francis himself, they're known for their celebrated connection to being a part of nature and this world as a mirror to which we pass over to God. And there's such a naturalness to this perspective, and yet the bulk of Christianity has seemed to pay no mind to this at all with the theology of domination over planets. That's right. So for me, what comes to mind is the difference in the perspectives of the shape of God that the Franciscans were more in the practice of the wild God rather than the domesticated God who needs the AC to be set to 68 degrees. <laughs> so can you add your take on the relational difference of Franciscans with God versus the dominant viewpoint that I think is the waters that we swim in right now? Yeah, let's uh, because Franciscanism has always been and easily is sentimentalized. We call it birdbath Franciscanism. Mm-hmm. Let me come, uh, and that's what Scotus and Bonaventure were trying to do, to give weight to this so it's not just sweet love of animals. So, uh, let's try what all, you brought up already this morning. Or did you? I don't know if you did. <laughs> Let's see, matter. I did. It makes me sound good. <laughs> uh, there's, and Martin Buber made it clear. He said, basically, 
there's two ways of relating to mm. reality. I, it, mm-hmm. and I, thou. Um, right. Now, the, the worldview of, of people before transformation, before reorder, is almost always I, it, that demands a conversion to learn how to give dignity, credibility, equality, authority, use all of those words, to the other. The natural desire of the ego is to dominate it. That's the I-it relationship. The I-thou is to grant it, I know these are big words, but subjectivity. And what we mean by subjectivity, it is, it is not objectified. Mm. Huh? Uh, once it's made into an object for my consumption, for my explanation, for my money-making, for my smart-making, I understand that. How many people don't you know? You know, as soon as you start talking about something, they have to show off their intelligence. Uh, they knew that. They know all about those kind of trees. Uh, and that's fine, but that actually, uh, knowledge is a form of the subject-object split. And how many people don't love to show off their knowledge about everything? Not that it's wrong to have knowledge of things. It's the way you do it. So the Franciscan worldview, personified in something that's sweet and sentimental, I guess, but was in Francis's first recorded use of the terms brother and sister for everything. Brother sun, sister moon, Sister Fox, Brother Air, even elements, even animals. Uh, I honestly, I keep saying I just got an email this morning, but I did again, <laughs> just this morning. There is someone who's calling a Franciscan who writes a column in a national paper, pagan, for saying what I'm saying right now. Wow. For granting subjectivity, subject to subject, I, thou, letting the other speak to you. Let's put it this way, letting the other have voice. And we've done this on retreats over the years, you know, to find one object in nature, to sit before it for a while, and then journalize what that old log would want to say to you. Mm -hmm. It has led many men also on the men's rites of passage, to tears, you know. Well, I stood here for 110 years, and then I got blown down or whatever. No one notices me, but I'm sure glad you noticed me. Mm. Uh, Thank you. It's amazing how easily the words come, but first you have to grant it voice, which is to grant it some level of equality or dignity or soul if you'll allow me to use that word. Mm-hmm. I certainly know there's a lot of people who when you say animals have soul, they just know only human beings have soul. Why do you say that? What evidence do you have for that? You know, you haven't observed very long. You haven't been present very long. Or you'd see everything has maybe rudimentary in rocks, but uh, what is life itself? A growing tree, a growing bush. 
that keeps returning every spring. That's the, it, it's, the seed is the soul of the thing. It keeps showing itself, showing itself, until it finally accepts this is my time to die. Mm. Uh, and usually does not fight its death. <laughs> uh, the higher you are in levels of consciousness, humans, we're the ones who fight the death. Animals, it certainly doesn't feel good, uh, but, uh, and I'm told most animals die a painful death in one way or another, but uh, they seem to also accept it. They say they go into the woods and sit down. And where do all these herds of reindeer, and every one of them die sooner or later, they go into the woods and sit down and die probably a lot of pain, mm. And they let then other animals come and eat them, and they're back in the life cycle. Mm -hmm. I, I have to say that soul. Mm. <laughs> Maybe not the way you talked about a soul going to heaven, but a soul who is already in the cycles of life and death and therefore heaven. Mm. So um, what Francis discovered was a spirituality for this world that allowed you to delight in this world and not just to seek to escape it, mm. uh, to get away from it, but to find God in it and through it. I'm glad you used the word mirror because that's the contribution Claire made, mm. her feminine contribution, because she didn't get to wander the fields. That's all that a woman could do in the 13th century after she was an adult. Mm. Uh, the women had to live in a cloister. And uh, maybe you've been there, San Damiano in Assisi. But it's interesting that she uses the word mirror more than anything else. Mm. Everything is a mirror. Now, she had a little garden. Uh, so maybe in a much diminished world, watching her little flowers and plants grow. And San Damiano was built like a, a little courtyard. It's still there exactly as it would have been when Claire was alive. Uh, she also seemed to be nature-based, and you see it in the metaphors she uses. That everything is a mirror, and mirrors the creator. So it was our contribution, but because we allowed it to be sentimentalized, mm. and because, especially after the Council of Trent, when you dang Protestants divided from us, you and we, we, <laughs> and we, had, we had to circle the wagons and prove that we were right. Mm -hmm. What happened to most Franciscans is we became priests more than friars. Mm -hmm. uh, priests in brown robes, you understand? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's what dualistic thinking does. Mm -hmm. Once we had to prove that the Protestants were wrong and we were right, we became more um, company men, yeah. let me put it that way. And that lasted till, you know, really, my early years in the seminary. That's when it began to fall apart. Mm. What's interesting to me is that this worldview, uh, this Franciscan worldview that held relationality as the basis of the cosmos, um, is now being proven as, as know, absolutely I know, it's correct. So wonderful. Yeah. From a scientific point of view. Yes, and I yeah. 
I think about the absolute arrogance of human beings to say such things like, oh, well, animals don't feel or plants don't feel or there's no soul. And, you know, we're finding now, you know, the, the most cutting edge science around consciousness is that human brains aren't producing consciousness consciousness mm-hmm. is the matrix mm-hmm. and so who are we to say and and it's believe the mater, matrix. Yeah, that's right that, that we are the only ones who have this capacity so as a point of of just observation that kind of full circle this franciscan worldview which is also so trinitarian right because yeah, it allows very. us to offer that subjectivity just as the trinity does to move into a communion paradigm with all reality like that's Actually, what science is telling us is real and so true. So true. So true, yeah. It took us eight centuries uh, after Francis to say, my God, he wasn't just a poet or a mm. sentimentalist. Right. Everything is relational. And the more that relationality can become conscious, mm. which is appreciative, mm-hmm. which is really contemplation, mm-hmm. appreciative consciousness, not critical consciousness. And that was the trouble with the Enlightenment, it was more, which we call analysis, always critiquing, critiquing everything. But what about appreciating, appreciating mm, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, in your uh, observing something? Uh, that's only strongly been reappreciated itself in the last 50 years. Mm. Just the fan or something. Thank you. Uh, You know, in all fairness, so we don't try to take all the credit, the other strand which held on to both the Trinitarian element and the nature element we now call Celtic spirituality. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, They had it way before we did. but isn't it interesting? They were considered a subtext, and there's a historical reason for it. You know what that is, of course, that the Roman Empire, which became Roman Catholicism, stopped at the uh, uh, Hadrian's Wall and didn't get into Scotland, and it didn't get into Ireland the, uh, across the Channel. And uh, those... Those uh, monks and nuns and Christians had an appreciably different spirituality. You'll Mm -hmm. see it in their art. You'll see it in their... Now, they don't get everything right because they're still, in my opinion, overly ascetic. Mm. There's still a lot of body punishment. Mm. And yet they love the earth and they love the animals and they love the seasons. But they still felt the body had to be punished. Mm. When you read the lives of the Celtic monks, they're pretty ascetical. Mm. And yet you read their, uh, I mean, St. Patrick's breastplate, who is the transitional figure. He learns from the Irish, even though he's not Irish. But he was a patrician. That's his name, Patrick, from Rome. And he Romanizes the Irish church, you know. Now it's all the councils of the church, the dogmas, the doctrines. Uh, but he still holds on to what he learned from the Irish. Mm. And you see this in his Trinitarian music and poetry. 
We have to believe he learned it from them, the people he was evangelizing, because that would not have been the norm in Rome mm -hmm. at that time, mm -hmm. we don't think. Yeah, and it, and it just helps me to think of those who did not immediately cut up and divide reality, but tried to appreciate mm -hmm. that wholeness before trying to understand some of the distinctions. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm thinking in particular about the ways that's it's right now in our world today. For me, some of those who are uh, like the Wendell Berries, the Gary Snyders, like who yeah. kind of live in this in this rhythm of I'm going to help tend to nature, and nature is actually going to respond in a reciprocal manner. Where I'm going to grow this tree, and this tree is going to respond by shading my house, and mm. and how it is, you know, with Gary Snyder being kind of the epitome of the practice of the wild and what does it live to mean in relationship to the wild with Wendell Berry when more of the in agricultural sense and how through their correspondence and friendship, they're seeing that the wild and agriculture actually need one another to thrive, mm. that you can't have control, but you need, uh, but you can't have complete wildness for humanity to kind of be on its own evolutionary path. But it's in that communion between the wildness and the, the, the cultivation of land as well. And that when you remove one too much from the other, like right now as we've just removed you know, so many wild species, mm -hmm. that is actually just damaging the way that we do, that we grow food, that we need to reintroduce mm -hmm. the ways that we're just naturally uh, a part of the evolutionary edge uh, into our landscapes so that we can try to rebuild that right relationship um, in that communal paradigm. I think the word relationship seems so central to, to this need uh, for us to, sh like for us to shift into this new orientation of a universal Christ Franciscan approach mm -hmm. to life, right? Because without relationship, it does just turn into domination. It just, it turns into... It always does. It, yeah. it reminds me of the conversation we've had about the world, the flesh, and the devil. It's like, you know, without relationship, then it is we fall back into the system that is the waters we swim in, which mm -hmm. perpetuate and teach us to just consume, use, abuse. Yes, yes. Yeah, I... Uh, and, and the scary thing, of course, is that I mean, I guess the Vikings were pretty abusive. I think <laughs> they, <laughs> they were, yeah. Uh, yeah. I think you could say that, yeah. 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 And, <laughs> and yet the white men from Europe who colonized America were pretty abusive. Yeah. Didn't see the sacrality of the earth or animals. Yeah. It's just that now our ability yeah. to be abusive is a hundred times more. Yeah. And if we don't name it and recognize it, I don't know where we're going to be 40 years from now. Oof. The signs, the objective signs are not good. Yeah. That your children are going to grow up in a world that has the beauty that we've taken for granted. Mm -hmm. um, it's sad. It's really, yeah. it's God must weep. So zooming into some of the, the practical ways where we can uh, maybe live into our values a little bit better. Uh, I was just in Spain a couple weeks ago, and I was stunned by how cheap it is to buy really high-quality, fresh local produce. Same in Mexico. It's stunning. Oh. <laughs> and it got me thinking about the relationship of food and our planet and also systemic oppression in our country where only the wealthy can afford organic, fresh, local produce. And it's just so messed up. 
So how does our relationship to food communicate our relationship to the body of Christ? How can we begin to pay attention to that? If you'll allow me, this is why I consider the Universal Christ book my most important book, if I can say that. Because what, I, what I've wanted to do all my life is extend the meaning of incarnation uh, to all of creation. Uh, uh, not just the body of Jesus, but the body of the earth, which has to be the body of God on some level. What, it came forth from God. It was God becoming visible and material, which is why I think John's Gospel uses the generic word flesh. Uh, but we so limited and uh, I, idealized the incarnation in the body of Jesus, who ascended into heaven, so sacrality was not here anymore. Mm. Now, we Catholics thought we were maintaining it, and symbolically we were in the, the bread and the wine. Okay, the, the sacred body is still here, you know. But then we even sent Mary's body to heaven. And so <laughs> we were always lacking in embodiment, to sacrality. But I do think it explains the, the Catholic obsession with the Mass. Bring the body into this world. Get it here. Uh, because it isn't here. <laughs> and what we're saying is, it isn't just the body of Jesus. It's the body of every animal, every bush, every tree, every water, are all the body of God. We, it was meant to be a different politics. It was meant to different, be a different ecosystem when you grant sacrality to the whole thing. You're going to walk on it differently. You're going to use it differently. You're going to respect it differently. You're going to pray differently. A God isn't up there anymore. When you kneel, you're kneeling on God. You don't need to call God into this situation. It radically changes your prayer, which is, was the meaning of most official Christian prayers where we pray through Christ our Lord mm -hmm. because we're swimming in Christ. We're swimming in the Christ mystery. So um, if people get what I, 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 certainly others have said better, but what I'm trying to say in the universal Christ, it is a game changer. It really is a game, because now there is dignity to everything. And it's not our place to decide who has the presence and who doesn't have the presence, who has the dignity and who doesn't have the dignity. Oh, this is such good stuff, you know, if I can say so myself. Uh, but, 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 <laughs> yeah. but it's not my stuff. It's, right. It's Ephesians, Colossians, mm. the prologue to John's gospel. It, it's the gospel, uh, which was meant to save the world. Mm -hmm. Just hear that phrase that we've all heard so often. It was meant to save the world. And all we had to do was save a few people. Mm. Fewer and fewer as history went on. Mm. So it didn't look like there was much joy. <laughs> And the angels of Bethlehem said, it will be a joy for all the people. I make a lot of that all. Huh? Um, so it still has to be, I have to believe, 
yeah, I'm sorry. I'm just repeating myself probably. No, I, I think this is so revolutionary. This teaching it's is revolutionary. so revolutionary because it impacts how we think about everything. And, you know, at a systemic level, if Christ is in all things and, you know, you're calling us to be the kind of conscious uh, actors in, mm-hmm. you know, in this kind of Christ movement to pay attention then we do have to look at things even as simple as food. And we have to look at, right. okay, how, do, how does this choice impact yeah. the whole? And There you go. And again, without succumbing to, um, as you were talking about in the world, the flesh and the devil, without succumbing to some game of guilt, like, yeah. oh, you know, you, you're not doing this or I'm doing this. And, you know, without weaponizing our values against mm-hmm. each other, this, the call to simplicity and to really pay attention to that devotion to the whole, I mean, we have to look at, at mm. food as one of those, maybe one of those systems too big to fail, right? Mm. That we need to pay attention to. Well put. Yeah, it's funny. Food has become one of those things in our little family that's mm. really centralized in, in issues of food justice because uh, we, we know we are paying more for locally produced food, but we're trying to support farmers who are tending to the earth in a way that's sustainable, that's going right. to regenerate the soil and not just take away. And it, I, a lot of it has to do with uh, an understanding of the universal Christ. It has to reframe how I engage in my day-to-day life and not just uh, interactions with people, but also with the planet as the body of Christ. Mm. And so, I mean, this is where I feel like the, the endless implications of trying to live into what your your book is is teaching us Mm -hmm. and i think this is at the cutting edge because we are living in a time of planetary crisis that we we have to reframe otherwise business as usual is going to end us Mm. up with just fire and uh tsunamis and catastrophe and only the rich yes will be able to buy their way out of it right the poor will die first and suffer the most Mm -hmm. And as you were saying um, in, the, in the previous episode about not being afraid to look at what needs to be criticized, mm. to notice within ourselves as a community, like why do we get so um, edgy around, you know, when somebody says, well, what about a plant-based diet? Like mm. what is it that gets so defended in us that needs to be like, how dare you critique the way that I eat and what I choose to consume? But to really, to call us as a community to to pay attention to what we're afraid of being criticized, um, to see that as an opportunity to to grow even further into these values that you're describing of uh, devotion and simplicity and public virtue, universal respect, universal, yeah. yeah. And uh, again, we're all sinning. Where uh, Jesus ate fish. Mm-hmm. Once you recognize it's all an ecosystem of Christ feeding Christ until the end, that's all there is, is Christ right. feeding himself. And, and you'd have to say in fairness, well, if we've extended it to the edge, then the plants are Christ too. Right. So it isn't just meat that makes you impure, which has always been my opinion why Jesus doesn't make anything of dietary rules. Mm-hmm. I'm not encouraging, you know, the wide consumption of red meat in particular, 
although it's helping my anemia to have a little right this now. This was yeah. really just a staged intervention to just, <laughs> to just give you a Richard, letter. stop that. <laughs> just kidding. No, I'm kidding. No, uh, it's, it's true. Yeah. I think you hold it in a way that allows for, okay, let's not be dogmatic here, yeah. but let's also look at the system. Let's pay attention and let's make choices together. And um, that seems to be the invitation of, of Franciscanism too, for me anyway. Uh, Franciscan spirituality invites these little shifts for us, sometimes big shifts, to live more fully into the universal Christ. Mm. And when I was recently reading Eager to Love, um, you talk about Franciscan spirituality as having a home base of nature and on the road. And I wonder if you could describe these two principles and why they might actually be helpful for us today and right now as a guide for how we can live a more environmentally attuned life mm. with less of a heavy footprint, with less of an attachment to place. You know, when this really hit me, it was I was in England visiting the Anglican Franciscans. And they have a charming little house somewhere out in the countryside of England, their mother house. And uh, they use a lovely term for people on the road in England. They call them wayfarers. And uh, it's much more common there. There's all over Europe, there's walking paths. We don't have them because we've idealized our notion of private property. That would never be tolerated in Austria. The, this is my property and you can't walk on it. There's always a path through it, you know. Mm. So that's the world Francis grew up in. And the early friars walked in. Uh, I should mention it, today's Jonathan's birthday. He's walking from Assisi to Rome uh, with his partner today. Mm. And they found the path, the Via Francesco it's called, that Francis walked several times from Assisi to Rome. It was a walking culture uh, which they fit easily into. And it was a critique of monasticism. Now, this was my BA thesis, so it's a big point of mine. Why did Francis say, and this is in his first life, do not speak to me of Benedict, do not speak to me of Augustine, was he trying to be anti-Benedictine? No, he just had to demarcate that they had gotten into, understandably, considering their period in history, the collecting of land, the, the uh, fencing of land, the, uh, and that's one reason the Reformation, at least in England, was so immediately successful some go so far to say that three-fifths of England was owned by the church and by monasteries. Wow. wow. I mean, <laughs> uh, every, we'll go there and see the ruins. Yeah. You just don't have to go far on the road. And it must be somewhat the same in Spain. Mm -hmm. the, the church became giant landowners. And Francis wanted us to be, uh, in fact, his rule, we were told when we learned it, was tips for the road, how, how to live in relationship with nature as you observed it while you were on the road. But then Shakespeare, did I say that in the book? Shakespeare uses a phrase that most non-Franciscans don't know what it meant. He uses it in two of his plays. 
They walked like friars. Now, to walk like friars is to walk not chattering next to one another, but in a row, hmm. about four feet apart. Huh. So it was it was walking meditation. Mm-hmm. So you didn't fill the the air with your noise, and you observed the plants and the flowers. Now I'm sure they stopped for drink and for eating and for talk. I'm not saying it was a vow of silence, but to walk like a friar, that that phrase existed or persisted till the time of Shakespeare mm-hmm. is really telling to me that. That we we had a different way of spiritual practice, and um, nature and uh, itinerancy were at the heart of it. Now it wasn't long. I don't want to over romanticize it, because I would say by the end of the 13th century, we had built little little friaries. They weren't nearly as big as monasteries, but we never surrounded them with farms. Mm -hmm. So we had to be mendicants. Mendico means I beg. Would the Spanish word be the same? I'm not sure. Yeah, doesn't matter. Uh, We really, we were like Buddhist monks in the Mm -hmm. early period, as were the poor Clares. So we have to believe that Clare herself went out begging, which introduced them to the world, but the world in a one-down position. I don't come as a teacher. I come as someone in need, you know. Mm. I come as someone who, who's ready to have the door slammed in my face and watches my reaction mm. to that. There are still countries in Latin America, I know, where the poor clares are still mendicants. Mm. You know? It was outlawed in the United States eventually, so we friars were quite happy to stop doing it. <laughs> but um, can you see how it's, it's a different social structure? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very different social structure, uh, which creates a different kind of religious life. But in all fairness, it didn't last long. Mm-hmm. It just couldn't be sustained. How When you're even up to 10 friars in one house, how do you free, feed that many breakfast, lunch, and supper from the beggars who go out and the people who live close to the friary got tired of their door being mm-hmm. knocked on? You understand? It's just, we don't like vagrancy. <laughs> and it was holy vagrancy. Now, what the Buddhist countries did was they made it a privilege to be able to put food in the bowl of the monk. I don't think we ever succeeded at that. We were more a bother. (laughs) Too rascally. (laughs) In my understanding. But the structure itself was magnificent, even though unsustainable. Mm -hmm. And the the brother who tried to organize us into sustainability, whose name is now a bad name, uh, Michael just read the book, did he tell you about it? Uh, Elias. Oh, yeah. Uh, Yeah. Brother Elias was the three on the anagram who tried tried to make this thing work and built the great convento in Assisi, which held like 200 friars. This is right after Francis dies. And so he's not even buried in Assisi. You have to go to Cortona, some miles away, and you go in a little corner, Hick, 
Yachet Elias. Here lies Elias. Nothing else is said about him. He became the villain who, uh, at least from my orders, Mm -hmm. uh, observation. But he also, he loved Francis and he loved the ideal, but he was an utterly practical man. And Francis wasn't. Francis was a zealot Mm -hmm. and an idealist, but none of us could live up to him. Yeah. Another name for everything will continue in a moment. Is there life after doom? Explore the complexity of hope and grief at our upcoming event, Courage and Resilience, an online gathering with Brian McLaren. Unpack themes from Brian McLaren's new book, Life After Doom. Discover how to find courage, even when everything may feel hopeless. Join us live on May 17th at 10 a.m. Pacific Time. All those who register will have access to the recorded replay for one year. Register at cac.org courage. Explore art as a spiritual practice in the next issue of Wanting, the biannual journal from the Center for Action and Contemplation. Wanting, Art and Spirituality features images and reflections from leading actors and musicians, including Scott Avett, Josh Radner, Lourdes Bernard, and more. Get your copy today at cac.org slash wanningart. That's cac.org slash O-N-E-I-N-G-A-R-T. Have you taken an online course with the Center for Action and Contemplation? Explore the intersection of ancient wisdom and Jesus' teachings in The Divine Exchange, an online course featuring Cynthia Bourgeau. Fully embrace divine interaction each day, starting June 16th. Register today at cac.org slash online ed. That's cac.org slash O-N-L-I-N-E ed. And as you mentioned, Fran- Francis, and and just thinking about these turbulent times where, you know, our planet is heading, we oh. are in the midst of crisis. Oh. And I know, you know. Pre-doom era. Yeah. That's what we're living. And consciously or unconsciously. Yeah. Mostly unconscious. Mostly unconscious. Yes, yeah. yeah. And as, uh, you know, I have two little ones at home. And yeah. And two little ones. And as we're trying to imagine raising them in this time where, you know, mm. our, our government is not addressing the issues of, of the climate crisis and denying it. the church is not being very helpful as a whole. Um, how do you see, like what does healthy spirituality look like yeah. in a time of climate crisis? Where do you see those of us in this Christian tradition? This is where I feel like Francis has so much to speak to us right now. He does. Yeah. He what does. does that look like? What do we need to pay attention to? How do we cultivate a sense of, of depth and groundedness in this time of such the ground is shifting and shaking in ways that well and yeah and maybe some of his zealotry is needed you know i mean to a certain extent it's like how can we how can we be challenged by his example 
I recently, yeah, I started, I decided to get the paper on Sundays as a way to oh, get my news, yeah. which maybe might sound really like heretical to people because you're like, well, isn't that the Sabbath? Shouldn't you be not paying attention to news that day? But my choice was to, so that I wouldn't be inundated the rest of the days. Mm. And there's something about sitting with the paper that I find is actually helpful in looking at the, you know, looking at reading the news in that way. I'm a tactile person anyway. Recently, there were a lot of headlines about the environment, and I now have a nine-year-old who can obviously read and picked up the paper and started reading. And he started crying. And he said, what is happening? You know, he was reading about all the animals that are extinct Mm -hmm. and on on the verge of extinction. On the verge. And um, our current administration's choices around that. And... um, he said, Mama, what are we, we going to do? We have to do something. We have to do something. And I just, I felt lost. <laughs> Opie agrees with me. Opie I, agrees. <laughs> I felt at a loss <laughs> in that moment because I also feel that. And I do feel like the choices we have ahead of us, if we're not radical about this now, um, no. we, are, we are living no. out of alignment with the values mm. of the universal Christ. And so. Very much so. I think back to your question, mm-hmm. Paul, like, how do we do this? How do, you know, what can we take from Francis's example and then take seriously? Well, how do you convict people of what is obvious? <laughs> uh, our capacity for denial is immense. Mm. And... Uh, I don't know how many hurricanes and floods and droughts it's going to take. Just like with the the gun crisis, you know, it it took three and three days for the panic to begin. My God, this is becoming a way of life. And we now have some movement. Whether it'll last, we don't know. Mm -hmm. But I, I think it's going to have to be one hurricane after another. But... The voices of money and business are so dominant in a capitalist culture. Mm. What matters is the making of money. And I'm not trying to be moralistic. I'm trying to be realistic. But um, any critique of capitalism, we saw it in our customer service department. Mm -hmm. We thought we would get a lot of nasty responses when I talked about gender And when I talked about, what was the other thing I thought? uh, Was it race? Race, yes. Mm -hmm. Race and gender. And they told me the angriest calls from people who think they're my fans. (laughs) Oh, was when I dared to critique capitalism. Why would you feel this need to run to the defense of capitalism? Only because... It's working for you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Have you taken the time to read a few books? Who is it not working for? You know, mm-hmm. how many is it not working for? Oh, the whole gospel hinges on some degree of detachment from your ego and your egocentricity and your self-referential reading of reality. You put the gospel in the hands of self-referential people, they will distort it on every count, Mm. on every count. 
The sacraments will be distorted. The Bible will be distorted. The priesthood will be distorted. Ministry will be distorted. Church buildings will be corrupted. Uh, it isn't worship of God or reality anymore. You know, so many have said in poetry over the years that nature, and we've all had those moments, nature is the natural cathedral. Mm-hmm. And gosh, that's true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's why do we need to cover that up uh, and block it out, actually? Mm-hmm. Block it out so we could pray inside. <laughs> <laughs> now, I know you were at Gaudi's uh, monument. I feel and, like we need to make an exception for him because at least he was trying to <laughs> make it look like a forest. <laughs> yes, I knew you were going to jump in. <laughs> no, uh, no, no, no. No, no, it's, it's true, good. You, it's true. He was just, uh, uh, Brie was just in Barcelona recently where Antonin Gaudi, wasn't that his first name? Mm-hmm. Anton, yeah. He, um, he tried to make a cathedral that looked like a forest. Yeah. Bringing in as many natural lights as he possibly could. Mm-hmm. And how many hours did you spend there? You, you just oh. keep looking and uh, looking. Yeah, it's stunning. It is stunning. And you do marvel at the, the human capacity for ingenuity and accomplishment. Yeah. Yeah. But to also recognize... You know, if we were to go and look at a giant sequoia, if a human being had carved that, (laughs) we would be saying, what a marvel Mm -hmm. of human capacity, you know, and yet we're cutting them down, right? Mm So somewhere between complete despair, (laughs) Mm -hmm. which I feel like I tilt into sometimes, Mm -hmm. and denial is hope. And I think, you know, examples like Greta Thunberg, am I saying her name right? Thunberg? Greta Thunberg. This young, do you know about her, Richard? This, no. This young woman who me. is leading um, an environmental movement. Uh, she's very. She's in high school, and she started this protest that has now taken on, and so many are following her example. I think she's called a an international uh, work strike tomorrow. Is that right? What is today? On Friday. On Friday. Yeah. Okay. But all that to say, you know, in the midst of this, in the midst, just as we've been discussing with every conversation, it's like in the midst of the reality that is absurd and is to be grieved, there's yet, there's like, there's yet this like somethingness is trying to emerge Mm -hmm. and break through. And how can we move into that animated action uh, and not fall into despair or live in denial. That feels like the, mm. the question I'm trying to mm-hmm. live into with my sons. No. <laughs> That's the challenge. It probably was of every time on a different level. Earlier people had higher rates of violence. I know right. that's hard to believe. But we just have higher rates of absurdity <laughs> at every level, at every level, just... Mm-hmm. And so I can, I can recognize why a lot of people have, have uh, blocked it, have checked out. I cannot absorb that much absurdity, that much mm. negativity, yeah. that much despair. And so for survival, they pretend it isn't happening. They just deny it. Right. That this little circle of five people around this table is all we need to preserve. But uh, that ain't going to work much longer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, and I see, you know, just being so aware of the ways that we are, you know, rolling back some of these protections that we oh, had. Oh, horrible. 
with our waters and our, our mountains. Yeah. Uh, and I think part of this, I mean, when I feel that despair, it's, it's almost like it just gets stuck in me. Mm, and I know, yeah. Richard, you said, like, you know, if you had another lifetime, you'd want to devote it to uh, ways of lamenting, ways of... Oh, well, the liturgy of lament. The liturgy, of, liturgy lament. of lament. And it seems like that's, there needs to be, the, in this era of, uh, of crisis, we need to have these yeah. liturgies of lament to be able to even process and accept reality and the absurdity of what's going on right now. And not let it just get blocked not in get our bodies. Not get stuck in it. Yeah, that's Because then we good, live in that though. despair. We kind of hide under the covers of uh, what reality is actually trying to show us. Or we have, you know, some of the most wealthy in the world trying to figure out ways to get out of this planet and go yes. live on, a, on another one, <laughs> which seems like a whole other way of, of channeling despair instead of the, the, the living that communal paradigm where we're acknowledging what's going on. Mm. So how, 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 do, how does... If you were to offer a word or a way of inviting us into those, a grief ritual or, or lamenting, a liturgy of lament for where we're at right now as a planet, yeah. where, where would you help guide us, whether it's in a personal way or in a communal way? It's the, really the only remaining alternative from exploding from your anger. Mm. And I, as one, am so tired of being resentful of reality and politics, and the church. I just can't live that way. So I myself have to deny. The only way out is to, I mean it in the classic sense, I wish I cried easier, but is to somehow legitimate weeping. Mm -hmm. It's a way of disagreeing with it, but while fully recognizing it. Mm -hmm. We created such a liturgy in the men's rites of passage, as you would remember, Paul. Um, and then the one I mentioned yesterday, liturgies of not knowing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if I had another lifetime, I'd love to, you know, give time to both of those because they're so contrary to mm. typical church services. Remember when I used to talk? Did I? I hope I used to talk <laughs> about the difference between ceremony and ritual. That ceremony affirms the status quo. Most Catholic and Protestant church ceremonies are ceremonies. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And they have to, they have to hold the psyche together. Life is good, God is good, you're good. That's all we can do in a deconstructed culture like we have now. But rituals, and this is from the professionals who give PhDs in ritual and ceremony, Rituals rightly named always reveal the shadow problem. They don't concentrate on it, but they expose it. They reveal it. Like the Wizard of Oz pulling back the veil. Mm -hmm. So I use a 4th of July parade and speech to uh, and call that a ceremony. Almost always. I use a, a loving but real protest march, or what you're calling a liturgy of lamentation, as a real ritual. Mm-hmm. Where you do ritualize the moment we're in, the reality, you're not a hateful person, but you name the garbage that's going on. Mm-hmm. Now, people who aren't used to ritual will be very afraid of that because mm-hmm. they're not used to the shadow being named. 
They're not used to the shadow being exposed. And they'll say almost always, you're anti-American, you're communist, you're violent. They'll pull out any word they can. Mm. No, this is the classic meaning. Now, let me bring that home to, you know, one ritual that persisted was Ash Wednesday Mm -hmm. as a, a clear example of that where the ashes were revealed, blessed, and put publicly on the forehead. I'm owning death and my participation in death. It's one of the few rites of passage that persisted into the modern era. Mm. And it always uh, uh, astounds me how many people come to church on Ash Wednesday. Do they know that? That somehow I've got to name the shadow. Instead of just, you know, happy little Jesus songs, which aren't truthful after a while. Now, we have the phrase, we proclaim the death of the Lord until he comes. But that's become, you know, an antiphone mm. at the middle of Mass. Mm. But we really don't proclaim the death. Mm. <laughs> what we've got to do is proclaim equally the death and the resurrection, uh, the dying and the rising as equally to be trusted and equally a part of religion. Mm-hmm. The only time I wish I were a pope is if I could... <laughs> <laughs> Can we just pause that? Yeah. <laughs> like, Let that sink on. in. Is <laughs> I wish I could rewrite the official prayers of the Mass mm. to let that be known. This is what we're doing here. Mm. We're saying loss and renewal yeah. is the pattern of Everything, Everything. not just of Jesus. Mm. And we keep worshiping it in Jesus and offering this sacrifice to God the Father of Jesus' death and resurrection. Whereas what we're doing, and that is said too, we're offering our deaths and our resurrections too, which means we have to trust both of them. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, And part of that resurrection piece to me that, that just came to mind was also be able to delight in just the beauty of this world too. Mm-hmm. Even as we know everything is in change, everything's in motion, mm-hmm. everything is dying, mm-hmm. everything is being reborn. I just had this flash of an image of, uh, uh, I had a beer with a dear friend a week ago, and we were almost just giddy with the delight at the sunset and that we were together mm-hmm. experiencing that. Mm-hmm. And it was just the, allowing the beauty of the moment to also have it say to you and not get only caught up in the in, in the yes. death that we're witnessing. That's, That's right. lovely. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, and that seems to also be like a part of our friends. The, I said our. Do you appreciate that? <laughs> That's all right. That? I'm happy <laughs> to have you say it. <laughs> the Franciscan that I am. Uh, but the, the heritage of Franciscanism is that uh, thisness, the yeah. hasty. Is that, am I saying that right? Hexiety. Of, of, of being able to oh. appreciate beauty and mm-hmm. particularity. And um, I'm thinking of your uh, gardening, Richard. The fact that for, for how many years now you've kept this? 21 years. Sweet yeah, little yeah. garden. Mm-hmm. And it's an image that's so burned in my mind when I think about you because, you know, as, as we consider how we can live in the tension of our times and how. Uh, we're being called to live into the universal Christ in the midst of an environmental crisis. Mm-hmm. I really appreciate that orientation, Paul, that you've offered us to say, you know, and turning toward beauty and cultivating 
presence that can have awe and wonder. That, you know, learning the names of 25 bird songs yeah. and tree species, mm-hmm. having that kind of intentionality is doing something. Mm. And it does put us in relationship That's with right. the world in a new way. Yeah. Yeah, it, it allows for the complexity, right, of the beauty and the despair to just be, it's almost like that Celtic or that Franciscan yeah. of the wholeness. Well, let's right. not divide it, let's just hold it. Hold it, both the dying and the rising. Yeah. Right mm-hmm. Like even now, the uh, later days of September, oh. I'm letting my garden go to seed. Mm-hmm. It's really hard to do. Oh, here we go again. How many times have we done this? <laughs> I, I didn't have a big garden this year at all, but... Um, there's something sad about the dying, uh, that I can't sustain these flowers, I can't sustain this plant. Mm. Uh, yeah. Well, Richard, as we close this episode, um, I wonder if you could share with us an experience that you've had this week of, of sort of turning toward that delight and awe mm. and wonder of creation as a source of recognizing the Christ-soaked world and the hope of what, what may yet be. I've been having it a lot. A lot. It's just been so easy to pray in the last few days. Mm. Um, part of it is because I'm slowing down and not traveling. I'm more a hermit uh, at home than I ever was in my life where I had to go off, leave the city to live in a hermitage. But by saying no to more and more uh, speaking engagements, I um, and having this cute little dog <laughs> who's biting Corey's fingers right now, uh, uh, he leads me into it. I have to take him out. And I just noticed in this little yard behind me all the different clovers and grasses and little seed seeded plants that make up the lawn from a distance it looks like one uniform green you get close and you look at it and of course he has to pee on any plant that's at all tall (laughs) uh yeah it it just makes me observe both the time element that I have more time than I used to have, uh, and the space element, mm. the space of my own yard. And, and I said that to someone who was walking with me while we walked Opie. I don't need to go to the Grand Tetons. I really don't. If this makes me delightful, I've been to the Grand Tetons, and they're grand. <laughs> but um, if I can get excited, which I do, about this little seedling, this little, uh, there's some that is almost mat-like, creating a little uh, bed. I don't know, it's, those little things make me happy now, really mm. happy. Mm. And I'm not saying that because you asked the question. And uh, I wish, uh, I, I started being that way, but I got too busy all the way from, you know, 30 to 70. Mm. <laughs> and now I'm free to go back to that. 
to not need to be in special places or cathedrals. Mm-hmm. In fact, churches really bore me anymore because mm. they're always blocking this out and saying this space is holy in here. That's, that's a lethal statement yeah. because if this place is holy, then that place outside is not holy. And I know we have to do it. I am. I don't want to be unrealistic. But um, the church where I have mass, this big barn of a church on this corner, uh, isn't very pretty at all. And there's I don't I don't think there are any clear windows. It's all covered with stained glass. <laughs> Not even very nice stained glass at that. Yeah. But we tried. We tried. That's. That's what we thought it was supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's such an invitation, an invitation for us though to, to also to slow down. Yeah, mm-hmm. to to live the kind of intentional lives that don't give in to uh, stress and busyness and the world's notions of success in order to, to be in relationship with this blade of, of grass and this particular yard and this tree. Yeah, this this morning I was taking out my recycling, you know, that annoying sound of the wheels against rock and gravel. Mm. And I was holding my son, who's almost a year old now, and, you know, I'm trying to balance both, and I put it up on the curb for the recycling truck, and I look up and there's the moon. Oh, And I was able yeah. to just have a, a pause in the midst of that busyness to delight in the fact that, I'm holding my baby boy, and we're oh, just together looking oh, at the moon. Oh. And that's what I feel like part of the gift of being having that awareness, mm. Richard, to those little things is then you can pause in the midst of the cast. Like, almost the is, littler, the better. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Although the moon isn't little, but it's a little thing to notice it because we it. take it for granted. Mm-hmm. Now, did you point it out to him? Yeah. Yes, yeah. the moon, you said. The huh? moon, there it is, washing God, over us. He's going to get a different religious education. Mm-hmm. And I know Bree does this with her boys, mm-hmm. too. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you, Richard. Yes, thank, thank you, Richard. Thank you, thank you. And while you were saying that, Opie was licking my hand, weren't oh. you? <laughs> weren't you licking my hand? <laughs> Blessing it with holy water. Oh, Opie. <laughs> well, should we look at some listener questions? Let's do it. Thank you for taking my question. So you spoke, Father Richard, in the universal Christ about the earth being the first incarnation, the first Bible, as you drew from Romans 1, 20. My question is, how do you continue to eat animals, or how do we not promote a plant-based diet when eating animals and animal and agriculture causes so much destruction to our planet and contributes to climate change. As is the violence committed to the animals that when we eat them and kill them, might you consider a plant-based diet or discussion of that as we continue to explore the sacredness of our earth? Thank you so much. Thank you for having the courage uh, to make such a proposal. I think it has much merit and addresses so many of the questions we're trying to address today. Uh, But I also note that Jesus never emphasized any dietary rules because he saw that what had happened in his own Judaism and frankly, in other major world religions, 
was this was where people were most likely to become legalistic and judgmental. You could not eat with people who ate this or, or even touch that. Uh, the, the dangers of that are so huge of creating a superiority system that I, I think I would trust Jesus on that, that uh, limiting uh, but allowing is the more compassionate response. Now, we can go a long way toward the limiting. I surely agree with that. We had a nutritionist come. I, well, uh, did she come when you were an intern, Paul, that woman who taught us about... On the nine-day interns? Yes, yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. you remember that. And if you remember, she said she really thought the ideal diet among the world's cuisines was the Chinese little flecks of of meat <clears throat> because <clears throat> very often uh, the body does need the amino acids. I know recently I found out that I'm anemic and if you've seen me with more energy the last few weeks, that's one reason. It's just been wonderful. Now, who am I to allow little animals to be killed so Richard can overcome his anemia? Um, I don't know, you might disagree with me, but that's part of the ecological sharing of life and death that we call the Paschal Mystery, that death is not the worst thing in the world. Now, should all killing of animals be done in a much more humane way than we now know it's done? And should their life uh, be allowed to live in free range instead of horrible little cages all their lives. Boy, I'm with you on that. I mean, many animals, especially those being raised for our consumption, live a horrible life and experience a horrible death. There, there's, there's no room for disagreement, I don't think, if you're a compassionate person. And I think what you're bringing out too for us is just the recognition that we're still learning about this. Yes. We're growing together as a community. Like we're learning about how, how our um, choices and how we eat impacts the environment and the whole. And so I thank you for your courage and your example uh, and your commitment. And I think in many ways it's we need more people to lead us to that place of, yes. of rec recognition <clears throat> and seeing the, the relationality of the whole and how our choices impact the whole. Yeah. And I know I've mentioned before, I, I've had a couple chickens and one did pass away, but we have uh, one left. Josh is what my daughter named him or her, I should say. <laughs> and, um, but it's funny because the relationship between us and Josh, Josh does not produce eggs Josh is just hanging around, and we're, it's it's a it's a different dynamic with an animal. It must be lonely too, isn't and it? it's lonely, and and we but it, it feels connected to this question of like how are we in best relationship with this chicken? And it's it's all trial and error, right? It's trying to learn how to be a yes. healthy part of an ecosystem that is very very tricky, especially now as we've we've yes. shifted um, how we eat and uh, how we feed animals. Mm. All right, this is the last one for environmental awareness. Hi, Richard, Brian, Paul. Thanks so much for this podcast. I have learned so much and also found a Christian perspective that really fits with how I've always seen the world but wasn't sure I was supposed to. 
My question is basically, how do we live and thrive and help in the world today with all the problems and destruction we see? I'm particularly thinking of the natural worlds where I've always found God and the startling realities of climate change and loss of biodiversity. My understanding is that Jesus taught us not to be anxious and to trust God. And Brie mentioned that the world needs non-anxious presence now more than anything which I agree with. But how do we find that place when we are hearing and seeing the destruction of our beautiful planet and the mistreatment of the animals and people who live here? How do we stay motivated to help and not shut off to what's going on around us while not going crazy and enjoying our lives? Mm. Is God going to help us figure this out? What should we be doing? Also, is there a way of seeing God in highways and oil fields and other man-made things? I should mention, I recently brought a beautiful little girl into the world, so these Mm. questions are even more pertinent. Thank you very much. I'll kick this one off. I I feel that sense of um, that maternal uh, concern of, yes, I understand I'm supposed to be non-anxious and that that is needed, but there's also an urgency to this problem that is inviting us or, or that we have a responsibility toward to act and to do something, uh, to participate in some way. And so what I'm hearing in this question is um, the desire to walk that tension of being a non-anxious presence in action. And how would you answer that, Richard? How would you describe specifically to the environmental concerns that we are facing now and those of us who are parents and are seeing the realities that our kids are going to face and are horrified by it? Yeah, too much emphasis on non-anxious presence could well be understood as largely passivity. Right. Uh, you know, that false understanding of peace of mind, keep my personal peace at all cost. I mean, it's no accident that three of the books are being written these days or read these days has the word collapse in them. Um, there's an urgency right now. And I, I don't think the the world is going to just be impressed by people who've at all costs maintained their inner peace. Uh, but enough of it, enough of it so that you can enter into the urgent with love and with patience. Let's just limit those two virtues, love and patience. When you can no longer be love, loving and patient inside the urgent, uh, okay, then you know you've got to go back and do more work. Mm. But uh, we're not telling you not to enter into the urgent because we're on the edge of collapse politically. Western democracies seem to be falling apart. The admiring of dictators all over the earth. We're, we're on the edge of collapse uh, in terms of the planet. I mean, people are now stretching it to say it's 10 years, that it's getting that real. And you who have parent children must, oh my God, what are your little kids going to grow up in? Mm-hmm. And for those of us who are Christian, the collapse of what we thought Christianity was all about in every one of our denominations, Mm -hmm. unless they descend to this false conservatism and false piety that ignores all political, social realities. Those churches are growing. 
But if you allow intelligence in your church, you're probably not growing now. It shows how much order resents disorder. Uh, the, the prevailing worldview doesn't like critique. And um, so we've got our problems. Mm. And this is no longer pushing the panic button. This is no longer a conspiracy theory. The world is in trouble, serious trouble it seems to me. Uh, and urgent trouble. I mean, the, the fires in uh, Australia are making it very real. Fires that look like they could, uh, you know, burn down a civilization. Yeah. Wow. I've been thinking a lot lately, Richard, on the, re the relationship between contemplation and creativity mm. and how maybe we can understand a non-anxious presence not as a static state, but the conditions from which we can be creative about the problems in our world. I like that. So that we're not in reactivity like to, we're not freaking out, we haven't, you know, we haven't lost our presence. Because in order to create something new, we have to be embodied and centered and connected to the source in a way to say, God, help us. Help us create a new solution to this problem. Help us find a way to salvage this planet. Mm -hmm. um, we have to be present people to be able to uh, be channels for that kind of healing force in our world. Mm -hmm. And when you say that too, what comes up for me, I think about you're not dismissing the chaotic times we live in either. It's, right. it's a full acknowledgement of the spectrum of the grief right. of what is occurring, but also the joy of what's still being experienced. And you, you have Hope. to hold both. Yeah. And I think about that for myself when, put my kids to bed at night and just my prayers for them have become those anguishes to be creative healing agents in the world. Cause I don't know what else, how yeah. else to pray for them. Yeah. Please God be with them as they face these tsunamis, these fires, these unknowns. And that's part of our calling as parents right now. I, I mm. find it just as we transition into this new year, I sat down with my kids and I said, all right, we need a mission statement. <laughs> I did. And so we just we decided our mission statement is that we seek to be kind, um, kind, creative, or sorry, what was it? Oh, we seek to be kind, courageous creators, mm. learning how to take care kind, of the earth courageous. and each other. That's lovely. That's and it beautiful. was that that like, okay, we're trying to be creators. We're trying to help solve and heal and participate in. And that takes courage, yeah. and that's not gonna be easy. But um, but there's hope in that. There's hope in saying we can do something about this. Mm. I, I, hope, I hope we can. Well, those pictures you recently sent of your two little boys, their eyes are just so clear, so clear and bright. You just hope nothing ever dims that mm. yeah. and fills it with cynicism. I guess all parents see that in their children's eyes. The expectation is all, it's going to be wonderful. Mm. You have to have that, mm. at least at the beginning. Yeah. And that's it for today's episode of Another Name for Everything with Richard Rohr. This podcast is produced by the Center for Action and Contemplation, thanks to the generosity of our donors. The beautiful music you're listening to was brought to you by Will Reagan. If you're enjoying this podcast, consider rating it, writing a review, or sharing it with a friend. 
to help create a bigger and more inclusive community. To learn more about Father Richard and to receive his free daily meditations in your electronic mailbox, visit cac.org. To learn more about the themes of the Universal Christ, visit universalchrist.org. In the high desert of New Mexico, we wish you peace and every good. Do you feel called to walk a more contemplative path? The Center for Action and Contemplation is an educational nonprofit supporting the journey of inner transformation. Our programs and resources will help grow your consciousness, deepen your prayer practice, and strengthen your compassionate engagement with the world. Learn more about our resources, such as publications, podcasts, email series, and events at www.cac.org.